0: Welcome to this Law and Sport podcast with me, Sean Cotchell, the founder and CEO of Lawrence Sport. So I'm here sitting in the offices looking over the Barbican Centre in London of the offices of DLA Piper. And I'm here with Nick Fitzpatrick, the global co-chair of the media, sport and entertainment sector for DLA Piper. How are you doing, Nick? I'm really good. How are you doing? Yeah, great. Thank you. Good thank you so much for taking the time out. Pleasure. Pleasure. Um, I'm always happy when we get to chat because I know how busy you are. I know, like a lot of the people we interview on the podcast, I really do appreciate I think law has a, a ridiculous perception on what reasonable hours are. <laughs> uh, I know that, that, that by any by any measure, you're probably doing uh, extensive hours. So I really appreciate it. i um, no, looking forward to it. And, and I, thanks, uh, for a, one, thanks for your time, but thanks for sure. agreeing to do this. Um, the reason why I wanted to chat with you is that you recently, well, your firm, I say you, <laughs> it's understating the work of your colleagues, no doubt, but... Um, you recently uh, published, well, I think, is a very interesting report that we've, you know, either got linked on this podcast underneath, or it's, um, you know, attached to the actual, uh, the research itself, which was a, a global media sector trends report from 2018, in which you touch on some really interesting developments. I wondered if you could. In the media and particularly from our perspective we're interested in the sport but you know, I think it's hard to separate the sport and media sectors nowadays. Yeah absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Um, Can you talk about how it came about uh, who are the people you surveyed and then we can get into some of the really interesting findings. Sure um, well thanks for uh, having me on uh,
1: first of all but just to say I mean we went out and started to look at what was available in the market in terms of data uh, really examining this issue of the flux that's currently happening around uh, both convergence and globalization in media platforms. And we had a look at the available research and we found that there was nothing that really scratched the itch that we were were looking to scratch. So we thought we'd commission our own. So what we did was we went out together with uh, the research arm of the lawyer. And we interviewed a number of senior executives across the media industry, and we did a survey of just over two hundred and fifty senior lawyers and execs. Uh, we did that just at the tail end of two thousand and seventeen, and then we compiled the research. We pushed it around our internal network, and we took analysis from various of our lawyers in the U.S. and in the Middle East, and in Italy, in Germany and elsewhere. And we put that together with the survey analysis and came up with the report, which I think we're really proud of actually. I think it does offer some genuine insights into where the industry is going and about to go.
0: Yeah, well I think that some of the data is interesting, but also some of the comments which is what I love when you've got this raw data and then when you get the people who know what they're talking about to have a look at it and say where the trends are. So. One of the things I thought was just struck me: the use of illicit streaming devices has grown significantly in the past two years. And according to the survey respondents, are now the second greatest source of piracy behind web internet streaming. Why is that? I wonder if you've got any insights into why that is the case. What are people being opportunist, or it's, it's it's
1: simply as technology have moved on. So the the music industry spent a long time really eating itself trying to find a way of stopping that mechanism for sharing and all the time found that they were really putting a finger in the dike and it wasn't, really, it wasn't really in the long term ever going to be sustainable with the results that we all saw. I think what is interesting and which is confirmed by the survey is that what some of the senior council were telling us and executives were telling us that's obviously one of the drivers for the, for the development of legitimate OTT platforms themselves you know addressable, uh, securable and they provide a secure mechanism for you know people consuming their content exactly in, in those ways they want to consume it. You know, So addressing consumer demand as it now is and not as it was 10 years ago and providing a service that people can sign up to as uh, distinct from stealing.
0: It's like the Now TV with Sky, I've got the Now TV offering and I think I, subscribed. I subscribe to, probably still am a subscriber now. Phones or whatever series, because you, you know you got you got to access it at the same time as Americans. So you know uh, yeah, before you may have been the alternative would be to stream it illegally. Yeah. And I'm sure it's the same with these boxes, is the fact that you yeah you may maybe you've got a Sky package or a BTs package or one of the or in America one of the other network packages, and because of that you can't get the other, uh, and therefore yeah. you find it frustrating.
1: I think it's certainly the case that. Global barriers are breaking down, and people are not happy about any more about hearing that something's been released in the US and waiting, you know, months for it to arrive in the UK, yeah, and that is a clear clear driver of piracy. Yeah, because
0: yeah, clearly, cool, cool, because in the past you could have controlled that message so you may take a week or two yeah. before uh, someone would know about it. So then, on the um, uh, you talked about, so there are smart things in it, but I just thought we talked about the criminal. Sure. Imagine, imagine the two between. Uh, the civil and criminal actions. What was there any indication from this? What uh, you yeah, know, more two things. What are the implications from crime from this area? Because I think it's one of the things I'm interested in within sport generally, in, the, uh, in other sectors, is that people often think that yeah, the proceeds of crime, whether it's through doping or fixing matches or something like that, they don't connect it between some of the other more unscrupulous behaviours that are taking place as well within the criminal world. In this situation, who are the type of people who are perpetrating these crimes? Are they sophisticated networks of, of criminals? And what sort of actions would you like to see, or would did people, I should say, so of so people responding, or, or even as a, from your own perspective, what sort of actions would you see as more severe criminal sanctions?
1: Well, I mean, you know, longer terms in, uh, lo- you know, larger fines, uh, where appropriate imprisonment. Um, but it is true to say that where you've got organized networks of people doing this stuff, you're talking about organized crime, you know, this is not, you know, this is not chicken feed, this is sometimes millions of pounds uh, being uh, earned off radar. And wherever you've got large sums of money involved, you've got organized criminals involved. So it would be wrong to think of this as uh you know, Robin Hood type. Yeah, yeah, which I think of. is
0: often the way that people think about these, you know, because you don't attach it to, my dad was a police officer, so I think about. Sure. <laughs> no, sure. So I always think about these things in terms of the connection, because my dad used to, I used to have a sort of, as you said, a lot, of, a lot of these type of issues, I always think about the Robin Hood type approach, and then my dad would clearly articulate to me why yeah. I, some, sometimes what you see on the face of it is not what's going on behind the scenes. I don't I don't. The there's thing. a lot of romance to it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and also then, I guess, part of that is a deterrent effect. Right. So with the criminal yep. sanction, though, as you said with the fines, it's less so about the. It's not about necessary, but just about the money itself. It's about the deterrent effect to make people stop and think about the seriousness nature of it. Yeah.
1: I mean, I wouldn't want to talk about anybody in particular, but no. I think as a general point, it seems to me that there's an educational aspect to yeah. all of this. That's, that's precise. Thank you. Yeah. That no, no. I mean, more it, succinctly than I did. No. You, you know, uh, there's a generation of people that are growing up that are used to getting access to stuff fairly instantaneously. And it's being able to educate and service that market to knowing that this stuff costs money to make, and that it needs to be protected, and that if you value getting access to great content, then there's a price attaching to that. That's and that, that is a that is a process of education which you know you you don't focus on at your peril, really. I think and and these cases, along with a whole bunch of other you know mechanisms can be used to increase the visibility
0: and this, that's interesting you said that, so as I'm looking at this I'm looking at page two of the report and I underlined something which was um, the core question is about does it talk about over the top right so everyones oh, firstly is over the top now an outdated term it's,
1: it's still it's still a widely used term but it's meaning has definitely morphed so you know when we used to talk about OTT the idea was that you were forming a new direct relationship you as content owner you were forming a new direct relationship with your customer without the intermediation Mm. of going through a broadcast platform or something of that sort And so it was this idea that it was incredibly disruptive, that it was going to destroy the existing media industry as it was known overnight and um, that we'd all own our customer relationships going forward And, and obviously over time when you look at the best-known OTT platforms, people like you know Netflix, then they obviously become aggregates in their own right. And then when you look at the service offering of somebody like Amazon, it starts to look in many ways like the service offering of a more traditional broadcast network, Absolutely. and then some, with lots yeah. of other bells and
0: whistles. Absolutely, Gary Vaynerchuk, who's <coughs> done very well with VaynerMedia, and he said that, you know, the, which I, I take on board and I think he's right. It's Not new, like what we're seeing is the behaviors when radio came out. We saw the same type of behavior when TV first came out. We saw the, you know, the innovations, you know, when it yeah. went from having your um, state broadcasters and then having the you know the skies, etc. We see these same type of patterns replicate.
1: every time there's a new technology, the same issues get dusted so they, you know, dusted off.
0: So, I, think, sure. I do think it's interesting to see how some of these predictions that people are saying, you know, in. Even you know, the Fusion Group saying that OTT TV is going to go up in consumption by all of its projections, so it's hard to say uh, to eighteen hours by twenty twenty. Yeah. Currently, it's at twelve hours uh, in two thousand fourteen, was at three point six. Obviously, you alluded to it earlier, but the the, the infrastructure, the technology, you know, to a point where we can. I think one of the challenges has been, you know, server farms, the distribution yeah. networks with the five the G then coming out in the states. Then that means you couldn't fast track some of those technologies out to the mass public whereas sort of the public say mass public, yeah. to the public to the consumer whereas before you had to wait for you know the cables to be put into place yeah. and other stuff like that so that's an interesting trend there but with this opportunity the point i was going to bring up about OTT which i thought was just fantastic i think it was Fabio Santoro I right. saying that right. <laughs> <laughs> the marketing and audiovisual rights director at the Italian football league. He says OTT enables us to touch and access different parts of the world, which I've always yeah. been cool because as you do some interesting market analysis about where you think OTT is going to be more successful, yeah. and interesting, Europe, we can come on to that. Why Europe is not as um, sure uh, uh, doesn't seem to be as as responsive to that. But he says the core question is about the reliability of people today to subscribe to this to watch this. You need to work out the economic model and what advertising potential there is. And I think that you were talking about, when we were talking about looking at uh, these platforms and how they were perceived, that, that there's an opportunity there to create people valuing the content. And to what point does the advertising detract from that content or, you know, become reliant on it? And as with these, oh, over the top platforms come, are we gonna see people be more, um, selective about the advertising and actually enhance that advertising or we've seen the proliferation of advertising across sport as a whole of sponsorship across sport and particularly across broadcast, are we going to see that if they have these OTT platforms, are they going Are we going to see this competition in models of, you know, these paid models or ones that become run advertising, or we see this sort of balancing out have we seen it before? Well I, I think
1: if you yeah, you know, there's room under the sun for all sorts of different models I think and I think one thing that's clear about sport, I mean you're talking about sport it seems to me is that the interesting thing at the moment is there is no clear single model in terms of how this is going to work. So one of the findings that came out of our report was that uh, the subscription video on demand was considered by the respondents, or most of our respondents, to be the key mechanism for driving revenue from... OTT platforms going forward Um, and that I think is a useful comment particularly when you talk about movies uh, and TV programmes I think it's a model that becomes more difficult when you talk about sport and I think it was interesting that one of the first big money offers that was made by one of the global social media platforms for sporting content was the IPL uh, last year, five hundred billion dollars I think it was, for Facebook and they would have been driving revenue from that through advertising and through expanding their reach to new consumers and not necessarily through the kind of, you know, the same SPOD type models that you would have got had you had those rights been picked up by another social media platform. Yeah. Um, so I think it's really early days to say whether one form of you know remuneration from those services is going to be dominant, or whether you know you're going to see different models arise. I think what is clear though is that there is this very significant shift now in advertising spend over to digital platforms and you're seeing and this is confirmed in the survey results the you know increasing dependence that people see on the rise of big data the impact that big data is having on the way they can drive viewers drive subscriptions upsell and all the rest of it and that is one of the key benefits obviously of OTT and, you know, digital platforms.
0: And that creates an interesting one. I think the DCMS have are are, are are taken the submissions and looking into this in terms of, uh, you know, the data betting platforms, media companies, because I, don't you know, obviously the, um, you may represent some of these clients, but I get concerned from a consumer perspective in the sense that you know, all the best data scientists working at some of these companies looking at your data. Whereas before, it was like you know, you use the term upsell, it was kind of like, oh, maybe some of this will work, maybe some of it yeah. won't. Well, Whereas it's much more sophisticated, than that much, than that yeah, I exactly. Yeah, And so, that, that's actually quite good from a it creates an interesting regulatory problem. From the perspective, whereas before, you, yeah, because you could, could, you know, you're saying, okay, we're gonna, have a, you know, we're gonna look at the advertisements that are on the TV yeah. from seven till ten at night, or whenever it was, or you know, for kids three you know, from nine AM till five PM. Whereas now they're like, if you're going along, we're gonna target you at a very particular point. And one of the networks was talking at an event in the Chatham House rules. Mm. So I won't say which one yeah. for that reason. But they were saying, Yeah, we know, we can tell that we work with this company and, and we'll pick out when the people are most emotional, right? Yeah. At a particular point in a football match. And in some ways you go, Brilliant, that's great commercially. But when you for me I get concerned and think about it from a regulatory perspective, now having a sum you know particularly yeah. it makes it more prominent I'm like well I don't want him to be conditioned by the time he's nine years old or ten years old that he, you know or whatever.
1: I think those are really legitimate concerns and actually the point that you've just spoken to is one of the key concerns of regulators in Europe and the US and you know it sits behind this regulatory trend towards more informed consent in relation to consumers data usage uh, the uh, the background to gdpr in europe and obviously the other legislative uh, uh, measures that are taken in the us so one of the other interesting things that our results provoked was this slight concern on the part of the media companies that we spoke to that a concern around data issues the, the issue that you've just identified yeah. and cybersecurity could be an impediment a significant minority of the number of people who responded to the survey were concerned that that would impede the growth of media services mm. and their ability to you know, use functionality, internet of things type functionality, yeah, yeah. where you're starting to aggregate this, this, this big data.
0: Finally then, uh, what would you say, because I think you know, we talked about this before and I mentioned to it earlier, you've got a global perspective and it seems from, from uh, your colleagues' comments about the US market, there taking a more hands-off regulatory approach at the moment. Going to be, which is gonna create some some interesting dynamics in that sector. What are you seeing as from a global perspective? And I haven't given any prep for this, so apologies in advance. But what are you seeing from a global perspective of 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 real trends from a regulatory standpoint, from a legal standpoint? What are you seeing as the sort of everyone sort of recognizing, okay, we're gonna take this approach? And then what are you seeing as the real divergence, in a in in approach?
1: Well, I mean there are you know, traditional differences between the European market and the North American market in relation to content regulation. I mean, I think areas like advertising have always been far more regulated in the UK and in, in Europe, both around content and around the duration of adverts and any broadcast hour. Uh, that, going into an era like Brexit, is one is one of the interesting mm-hmm. potential fallouts of that does the does the UK industry start to move into an environment in which it gets a bit more deregulated over time and what threats and opportunities because you can see both coming out, come out of that regulatory shift that's that's certainly one area um, and, the, and another area is obviously the tendency towards and how aggressively you're going to regulate the online environment and what we're seeing in Europe Again, is through the Audiovisual Media Services Directive changes a desire for Europe to to engage with that part of the business? And again, is that going to be an, an area where, in the future, you know, it's not going to be happening immediately, but in the future, you might see some divergence between UK regulation the online space and and um, and and European like regulation that space. And then there's the obviously the big area at the moment is data. It seems that there are that there there is a similar desire both sides of the pond between the US and the UK and Europe to um, move towards an environment of informed consent. Uh, there is a concern to increase and improve security on devices, so that privacy is built in to. Uh, you know, Internet of Things devices—they become developed. There's a high degree of similarity between regulations both sides the Atlantic on, on those issues, um, and there needs to be because if you know one thing is global, you know one thing can be moved around quicker than anything
0: else it's data. I think um, do you have any views on the sports betting market in the U.S. because because of, of the uh, you might not be able to talk on it because of uh, uh, your clients, but I think it's interesting to see inevitable for me. Well, yeah, you know, I can. I have got the luxury. I can is alike, it seems inevitable that they're going to have to, yeah, you're better off regulated than not. However, given the landscape, would you, one thing I, I always say to, to people in the States is like, you've got an opportunity to learn from the stuff that we've done in the UK, France, and Australia, and get the regulation right or better, you know, fast track it as opposed to just liberalising and going, right, allow sports betting, particularly given the, the negative consequences that yeah. could be there with their advertising. Yeah, with their with their view on advertising, which is allowing everyone to bombard people pretty much with advertising.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that I think that's right. I mean, when you're deregulating, when you're liberalising a market, you have the ability to institute a regulatory regime which you know, is. Uh, is 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 more thoughtful than in circumstances where you've come to a market which is already very liberal so in the uk you know we bet you know we've always betted we're always going to bet and so you know if you want for example a sport to come along and say well hang on uh, you guys are using all of our material on our events and we're really not making any direct revenue out of that at all that seems unfair. That seems like you're piggybacking off our rights in some way. You know, we'd like the law to reflect that fact and ensure a revenue stream. Then you meet a whole resistance to that because yeah. people are used Absolutely. to a market where that didn't happen. That sort of issue in the U.S. obviously can be treated differently. Yeah, it the away
0: from tax from a tax perspective. Yes, indeed. But make. so
1: those, those are things which it's now. You know important that u s sport you know gets the u s regulators on side to fully understand where the u s market can take a lot of learning from how we, particularly as betting markets have liberalized across Europe and elsewhere how we've already been dealing with those problems because yeah. obviously we've been dealing with them for a number of years, Absolutely. and that's something that u s sport is Know, in the middle of grappling with and uh, you know we're, we'd be very delighted to help them with it.
0: <laughs> well on that note thank you so okay. much for your time I well. uh, really appreciate it real pleasure um, as always I love doing these sort of interviews because it just gives me so much research to go away and do so give me a lot to think about and I think it's uh, you know as I said earlier the sports sector relies so heavily on, on the revenue from media it's one of those things where you know the future of sport is in the media and we're seeing this with you know, another conversation about what problems that poses with social networks and uh, what opportunities there are but maybe enough maybe around two at some point
1: yeah delighted yeah great to chat brilliant